from the vaults. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. If you have even casually glanced at the news lately, you're likely very aware of the plight of Latinx migrants fleeing violence and political persecution in their home countries, only to face mass detention, brutal family separation, sexual violence, and deportation at the hands of an American government that has, at the best of times, been indifferent to them and is today launching an all-out attack against them. For this episode of OFTV, we're going to take a look at the life of one migrant trans woman from a bit of a different period of American history. We're traveling back to the 1980s, where we'll follow her flight from homophobic persecution in her home country to a migrant camp in Jimmy Carter's America, and on to her eventual transformation into an AIDS activist. Though her story is not yet over, she has already been immortalized in graphic novel form by Jaime Cortez. Join us as we discuss the fabulous life of La Chica Streisandissima, Adela Vasquez. Her tell it, Adela Vasquez was born with the smell of burnt sugar in the air. Castro's revolutionaries had set the local sugar mills on fire as they swept the country in 1958, ushering in the revolution that would forever change Cuba. With revolution in the streets of Camaguay, it was too dangerous for Adela's mother to go to the hospital when she went into labor. Instead, Adela's grandfather got on his bicycle and went to collect the local midwife. But Adela waited for no one and was born before the midwife arrived. Adela's mother had given birth out of wedlock and even in the midst of revolution, that was a disgrace to a Catholic Cuban family. So her grandparents adopted her and raised her on their orange farm. In Jaime Cortez's graphic novel of her life, Sexile, which was drawn from 14 interviews with Adela, she spends quite a bit of time discussing her sexual misadventures in her childhood. According to her wild stories, she slept with everyone from classmates to teachers to truckers at such young ages that even I clutch my pearls a little bit. When, at age 11, the revolution sent her to an all-boys boarding school, she turned lemons into lemonade and set to work seducing all of them. 
She's clear on one thing, though, telling Cortez vehemently, but do not call me gay. I never had gay sex, never will. I'm always the girl, he's always the man, even when I'm fucking him. The boarding school, as many all-boys schools did at the time, had a drag pageant. At 15, she entered the pageant, enlisting her girlfriends to help make a weave by taking apart a coffee sack thread by thread. Though she turned the look, she says she lost to a boy with a fake pregnancy bump. In an interview with SF Weekly, Adela says, On my 13th birthday, I told my grandmother to give me money to go to the movies. Of course, I didn't go to the movies. I went walking downtown, finding out where all the locas hung out in Camaguay. Around the Casino Campestre, a park with plenty of fountains, I had seen a few locas, a few faggots. There, I met people that I know to this day, La Yoya, La Miami, and some other weird locas. Those were my first contacts with Cuban faggotry. The Casino Campestre had a fountain in the shape of a swan that spat water out of the beak, and there all the locas would get baptized. An older loca would baptize you. She'd wet your hair and forehead with water, pulling your head back and praying, With this water we are turning you into a faggot. And I was baptized as La Chica Streisandissima. I had my godfather named Candelita and my godmother, another loca. We were so young, 14, 15 years old, we'd sit at that park and model all the clothing we had. And now comes Fulana with that stunning dress. In our heads, it was wonderful. During her teens, the army sent her a draft notice. She showed up to the physical exam in drag and got rendered ineligible for service. The revolution had no place for homosexuals. In the early part of the Cuban Revolution, gay and trans people were sent to forced labor camps, often referred to in English as re-education camps. Some were able to avoid the camps by marrying other gay friends, gay men marrying lesbians mostly, but many were not. Adela notes that while the revolution gave her an excellent education for her teaching degree, she quickly lost the teaching job the revolution had given her because she was too obvious a homosexual, showing up to class with plucked eyebrows and blush. Perhaps, if she were a different person, she could have stayed in the closet, but as Adela puts it in Cortez's graphic novel, quote, No one ever forced me to wear makeup to school, and no one was going to stop my ass from doing it. All the women's in my family were stubborn. My mommy, my grandma, large and in charge. I just felt I had the right to be whoever I wanted to be. Toward the end of the 1970s, Cuban writers and dissidents had begun trying to plead asylum at foreign embassies in Havana. The first few faced arrest for this anti-revolutionary behavior. And in May 1979, 12 more hijacked a bus and crashed it through the gates at the Venezuelan embassy. The following January, asylum seekers tried to take refuge in the Venezuelan and Peruvian embassies, only to be shot at by Cuban police, causing an international crisis. In April 1980, another group of Cubans hijacked a bus and drove it straight into the Peruvian embassy, with a Cuban guard dying from a ricocheting bullet. 
The Cuban government withdrew its guards from the embassy, and within days, 2,000 Cubans had flooded into the embassy seeking asylum from the revolution. It was a PR nightmare for the revolution, which was struggling to prove to the capitalist world that it had been successful and was wanted by the Cuban people. Eventually, Castro threw up his hands and said, fine, leave then. He announced that all those who wished to leave could go to Mariel Harbor and leave Cuba forever. The United States even offered to take these refugees in, which on its surface seems shocking today, but was really part of America's broader strategy of undermining communist revolution. Taking refugees from a country is an international signal that that country is a failure. This thinking is why Canada, for example, now has a safe third country agreement that prevents them from taking refugees in from their own allied nations, such as the United States or the United Kingdom. Adela was alerted of the news by her mother, who, knowing her child would never be able to get a job or have a life as an out queer person in Cuba at that time, urged Adela to flee the country. Her mother gave her 400 pesos, and Adela traveled from Camaguay to Havana with a group of locas just like her. They were told to go to a military base to wait for a bus to Mariel, but were met there by a mob of angry revolutionary men. The men beat Adela unconscious. Undeterred, Adela eventually made it to Mariel only to be forced to wait on a beach for days with other asylum seekers. She says that Castro had, in an attempt to mess with the Americans, sent criminals to the beach to be exiled alongside the refugees. All of these outsiders were forced to wait while a tropical storm assaulted the beach, preventing boats from leaving. Adela gave up everything, even those 400 pesos. She finally got on a boat on May 13, 1980. The journey is not far from Mariel to Miami, but after days trapped on a beach in a tropical storm, the Marielitos, as they would come to be known, were worse for wear by the time they got on the boats. Adela describes the boat as oddly quiet, a rarity among groups of Cubans with rumor whispered between passengers that Fidel might sink their ship at any minute to punish them for betraying the revolution. It took eight hours for them to cross. She says that during that time, a woman gave birth. There was no food, and Adela passed out. Funny how a lonely day Make a person say, What good is my life? Funny how a breaking heart can make me stop to say, What good is my life? Funny how I often seem to pick and find another dream in my life. But her boat made it. In total, 125,000 Cubans fled during what's now called the Mariel Boat Lift. Refugees were met at the docks by Miami Cubans and moved to refugee processing centers. 
The one Adela describes was in an airplane hangar. Those who had sponsors in America were free to go with their sponsor, but people like Adela, who had no one in America, were sent to places like Fort Chaffee, a military camp in Arkansas. Things started to get better for Adela there. Food was in good supply, and she quickly found and slept with a well-connected man within the camp who got her her own room. She notes that during that time at Fort Chaffee, she, quote, had all 31 flavors of Cuban dick. I guess I was saying goodbye to Cuban sex. Her stay there came to an end when a gay Cuban sponsor in Los Angeles agreed to take her on through the LA Gay Community Center. She'd spent 75 days waiting for a sponsor, and now she finally had one. She was free at last. Adela was given a small amount of cash and a plane ticket to LA by a Christian church. Her sponsor, Rolando Victoria, soon became her gay mother. He too had a heart that ached because he had not seen his own mother in years and, thanks to the revolution, knew he never would again, just like Adela. Rolando worked in a clinic and quickly warned Adela of the new threat that was appearing in the community. Young, otherwise healthy gay men were suddenly wasting away and dying from rare cancers. Even before it had a name, Rolando impressed upon Adela the importance of wearing condoms, years ahead of their mass adoption by gay activists after GRID, gay-related immune deficiency, became AIDS. Adela credits Rolando's stern, motherly advice with saving her life. Throughout her first decade in the United States, Adela watched as many young men around her died rapid, painful deaths. Rolando got a job at Neiman Marcus, where she sold all of the luxury products she'd spent her childhood secretly adoring in fashion magazines. But she quickly developed a coke habit that eventually cost her that job. One of her friends designed costumes for the ice capades and hired her on as an assistant. Rolando eventually drank himself to death. Adela says, quote, October 23rd, 1983, I got to San Francisco with my friend Catherine a few days before Halloween. It was the first time I lived in the ghetto, the Tenderloin. Right on Eddie and Taylor, I was dating Alicia. A bunch of Cubans and Alicia lived in that apartment. We slept on a mattress made of pillows, lying in the kitchen along with mice. This was the first time I went to the end up. I walked on 6th Street. I was fascinated by San Francisco. Then I got a job at a hotel where everyone was from the Philippines and we had some communication problems with our accents. I worked in several places in clothing design, but mainly cutting hair. In one of these places, a tiny place over by the avenues, I worked with my girlfriend Jorge Luis and three other fags. All three of them died of AIDS. I was left alone, and in 1989, I moved back to L.A., and that's when Adela was born. She had for years been watching the transsexual girls perform at clubs like the Cha-Cha Club in L.A., and been fascinated by their glamour. But now she was finally doing it herself. Many of her gay friends reacted negatively as she recounts in Cortez's graphic novel. 
She began taking hormones and working as a showgirl in drag pageants. She says of her transition, quote, When I first arrived in this country and saw the first transsexual women, I was like, wow. When I saw Zolka in L.A., for instance, the first time, I looked at her and just stared. All silicone, a very beautiful monster. She's a marvelous person, that Zulka, with a wide knowledge about all this. It was like talking with the guru of transsexualism. That's when I began to transform myself to transition. So I never went to the doctor. In that, translatinas hold all the power because they bring their hormones from Mexico. During that time, there wasn't that thing where you could just say, I'm going to make myself a girl and go to the doctor. I'm not sure how it was for the white girls. I think they could because there was that problem of the gatekeepers. But I personally never heard about that going to the doctor. This is what you did. You went with an older loca who advised you in what hormones to take. They gave you fantastic recipes and you try and see which one worked for you. Some would turn you hysteric. It was wonderful. We got them through the black market. What many of these hormones are is really strong birth control, and they'd turn you into a beauty. So much tits. Adela told SF Weekly, when I won Miss Gay Latina, the AIDS epidemic was still strong. There was no pill, none of those things we have today. I'd do my show at different places. I'd performed at a hospice where people went to die. And that's when I realized that there were a lot of us, that the transsexual thing was not organized and there was nobody representing the Latinas as a community. For instance, the Latinas taken to the hospices to die were not allowed to dress as women. They'd be there dressed as men. I mean, it wasn't that they didn't let them, but the place was not conditioned for them to be who they were. I said to myself, Okay, Adelita Mama, you need to do something. That's when this lady, this drag queen, this boy who dressed as a woman, this person calling herself La Condonera, appeared in my life. Mexican. This communist Mexicana giving away condoms in the street. I don't even know where she was getting those condoms from, but she'd go out at night where the prostitutes the drag queens were. She saw me performing and went up to me, could not stop herself, and said, Mamita, I want you to work with me. When I started working with her, I realized there were a few other people I could recruit. I recruited Alexandra. At that time, Alexandra had just graduated high school, a pretty chubby girl. Alexandra is Puerto Rican. She was 18 at the time. After I recruited Alexandra, there was another Salvadorian loca, very tall, and another kid who was around somewhere. There were four of us. We were called Las Atre Divas, a group of transformistas, let's say female impersonators. We created that group. Really, it was my idea, and Hector Leon, La Condonera, had the ease of knowing people, the connections, because he was involved with Proyecto Contrasida. Proyecto Contrasida was on 18th and Dolores, where the ice cream shop is now. Las Atre Divas spoke with Gustavo Arabioto, an HIV coordinator for an organization of the time. He also got involved. He connected me with the bartender at Esta Noche, this beautiful Puerto Rican boy who died. He asked the owner if we could perform there. He said we could, and I proposed to them a show with the Atre Divas that began at 1.45 a.m. 
They used to have a license that let them open until 4 a.m. on Saturdays. I'm not sure if they still have it. Word got around as I told my friends who hung around the area. Many were straight, and so the bar would fill at that time with a completely different crowd. In addition to her work with the Atreidivas, Proyecto Contracida ended up hiring Adela as the first trans-Latina to work within the AIDS service organizations in San Francisco. She also worked as an activist for the Latinx trans community. She describes some of this work to SF Weekly, quote, Tamara Ching asked if I wanted to represent trans-Latinas in the Human Rights Commission during a meeting at City Hall. At that time, transsexual people got disability because transsexualism was a mental disease, and I thought this to be horrific because in this capitalist country, when they give you disability, you don't count because you are not producing. What they want is for you to die so they can stop paying you. Okay, it is not like that, but basically it is like that. I went there to protest. One of the first things I advocated for is that there are a number of people in the Latino community who don't dress as women, but are women. You know, those loquitas who have their woman's name, they don't take hormones, but are fierce tipas. They have to be respected as women. That happens a lot in the Latino community. I was bringing these issues to the forefront and people were realizing what was truly happening in the community. Because Proyecto Contracida, you know, we were in a fantastic location. 16th and Mission was truly the mecca of transsexualism and faggotry. Adela continued her work as an AIDS educator and activist throughout the 1990s and 2000s. In 2004, Latinx artist Jaime Cortez conducted a series of interviews with her that he turned into the graphic novel Sexile, which was produced in collaboration with Gay Men's Health Crisis. GMHC is the oldest AIDS service organization, which you may remember from being immortalized in co-founder Larry Kramer's fiery play The Normal Heart, which was adapted as an HBO movie a few years ago. In 2009, Adela appeared in a documentary about the impacts of the medical system on trans communities called Diagnosing Difference. Here's a short clip of her describing the concept of passing. Can I say something about passing? I think passing is a word that discriminates us immensely. Not everybody can pass. And passing is something that the doctors will tell you to do. You try to pass. Well, I, no matter how much I pass, I will never be a biological woman. How about empowering me as a transgender woman that I am? In 2017, Adela's oral history was included in Juliana Delgado Lopera's book, Cuentamelo, Oral Histories by LGBT Latino Immigrants. Unlike many of our stories here at OFTV, this one doesn't end with a tragic death. Adela is still alive and well, living in San Francisco. Through her work as a performer, an activist, and an AIDS educator, she has created spaces for her community to thrive, and her wild and colorful anecdotes have inspired many tellings of her life story, providing critical documentation of a community rarely added to the historical record. 
May la chica strazandissima continue her reign. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all of the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever else you get podcasts. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter or to our podcast account at OFTV Podcast. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.